Stay hungry, stay foolish. We are going into 2022 with Zai as our sponsor for the entire year, and it's an absolute pleasure. Zai is a global fintech, innovating within their area of expertise, building financial services for digital native and non-native businesses. Check them out at hellozai.com. Growth is the goal. Helping people develop their potential, enabling them to articulate and become the self they want to be, are capable of being, and that best serves them and others in the short and long term, is what we as individuals and leaders strive toward. In today's book, our guest dives further into the S-curve of growth and learning than ever before. The growth and learning journey comes in three phases, the launch point, the sweet spot, and the high end. In the book, she uses compelling examples of successful people to show you why growth is slow, how to keep going, what to do when growth and learning are almost too fast to keep up with, and how to leap from one growth journey to another. We welcome friend of the Innovation Show, multiple-time guest, prolific author and author of her latest book, Smart Growth, How to Grow Your People to Grow Your Company, Whitney Johnson. Welcome to the show. Aiden, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It's so great to have you. New new year, new book, new growth. It's all fantastic. The only thing I don't see with the new growth is the hydrangeas. Last time we spoke, you had hydrangeas. I know it's Christmas season and the poncettias are out, but where the heck are the hydrangeas? Well, the hydrangeas are out in my yard, in my garden, waiting for springtime to bloom yet again. So I guess they're probably on before the launch point of their S-curve at this point. <laughs> they're, they're regenerating at this stage, ready to climb another mountain. All this talk will make sense in a moment. And I have great news for audience. I have a copy of this beautiful book. And by the way, I love the colors, Whitney, as well. I have a copy of this book up for grabs. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter to be in with a chance to win a copy of Whitney's magnificent new book. I've bought about 20 copies, by the way, Whitney, I was telling you just before we came on air. Let's get into it because we have limited time together. And I wanted to start, Whitney, with a beautiful passage that you might like to build on. You write in the book, you and I came into this world pre-programmed to progress. We have different circumstances and curiosities, but the same drive. To want to grow is human, but life has a way of muffling our innate desire to learn. And as adults, we often find ourselves stagnant or bored at work and in our personal lives. Maybe we'll use that as a starting point. It's interesting because whenever you write a book, um, there are so the, the backdrop of this is that you write a book and you come into a book having this point of view. And then you realize later that in fact, you have a lot of a priori assumptions. Um, and so one of the a priori assumptions I had is yes, we can talk about growth and yes, we can talk about learning. But what are some of my foundational assumptions that go into writing this book? And and I realized that one of them is that I believe that we came to this planet where we were pre-programmed. It was wired in us that we could learn and we could grow. And so when you have that belief that every single human being on this planet is meant to grow, is meant to, to develop, then if we're not growing and we're not developing, then the question becomes why? And so that that became a really profound question for me that I wanted to th to think about. I know that you, for example, I loved what you mentioned some of the Greek myths in the book as well. But the philosopher Socrates believed that we were brought into the world with all the knowledge and we forgot it at birth. And the idea of life was to actually find it again to actually decipher who we were and, and adduce the best selves from ourselves as well. And I thought that was a beautiful compliment for for the way you talk about this and indeed, for the S curve work we're about to get into. But I wanted to just give a little bit of a, a background. So a handing of the baton from your other books, which are absolutely fantastic to this book, because you've studied written advised and coached about human potential for two decades. And this book is the next step in your own S curve progression. And you tell us, some people are intuitively proactive in directing their own growth, but even they can benefit when the process is made explicit. A map can jumpstart a smart growth journey. 
the S curve of learning is exactly that map. And perhaps we can use that as a way to share the S curve as a map into how to manage our own growth and the growth of our companies. Yeah. So one of the things I think is actually really exciting right now is that um, after two years of, of a pandemic, um, we are in the, we have this opportunity of what psychologists call post-traumatic growth. So, you know, after a period of tremendous difficulty, severe stress, many people undergo this personal transformation. And so I think where we are right now in the world is that there's a sense of, I want to grow, I'm ready to grow, I need to grow. But many people are like, but how do I do that? What does that look like? And so what the S curve of learning does is it provides you with this map, this simple visual. And I know many of your listeners are very familiar with this, but I'm, I'm recapping in case people are not this simple visual of what growth looks like. And so um, shall I give some background on it? Would that be please helpful? Please do, please do. Okay. Yeah. So um many people will know, but many people do not know is that the S curve was actually popularized by Rogers, Everett Rogers. He was a social scientist. And um, one of the big questions that he uh, was trying to figure out is he had all these corn farmers in the state of Iowa and the United States. They had this new corn and none of them were adopting it. He's like, this does not make sense. This is useful. It will increase their yield. It's drought resistant. It's easier to harvest. Why aren't they adopting it? Well, what he found is that it took about five years for 10% of the farmers to adopt it. But then once people realized, oh, this is no longer just novel, in fact, it's worthy of imitation, then the, the adoption went from 10% to 40% in just three years. And so he 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 decided and, and, and analyzed and postured or postulated, I would say, is that every idea when it's adopted follows the shape of an S. And so he, his big insight was to look at how groups change. And, and that's something that I think is very powerful. He saw it with the corn. Well, we were using it at the Disruptive Innovation Fund that I co-founded with Clayton Christensen to look at um, how quickly those innovations would be adopted. And therefore, when would our investments take? off. The insight then I had as we were doing this investing was that the S curve could also help us understand how we learn and how we grow. And so then you start to have this map because what it does is you say to yourself, okay, if I look back at the corn farmers, that means that every time I start something new, I'm going to be at the base of that S. And it's not that growth isn't happening. It's just really slow and it's awkward and it's uncomfortable and I'm going to be impatient and, and possibly discouraged. And so the growth, it's happening. It's not apparent. And so it's going to feel very slow. So that's very helpful for you. You just take on something new and you're like, this isn't going fast. Well, it's not supposed to go fast. And then you start to normalize the experience you're having and saying, this is slow. This is normal. It's exactly how things are supposed to be. And then from there, you say, okay, well, now that I put in the effort, I've increased in competence and confidence, I'm going to now move into that steep, sleek back of that S curve. And this is where things are still hard, but they're not too hard. And they're definitely easier, but they're not too easy. So it's super exhilarating. All of your neurons are firing. And so this is the place where growth not only is and feels fast, and, and this is that part of the curve back to the corn farmers in that three years where you went from 10% to 40%. And then at mastery, where you're very good at something, you've figured out how to do it, but because you're no longer learning, you're no longer getting the feel good effects of learning. You're no longer getting that dopamine. You can get somewhat bored. So growth now is in fact slow. So now you have this very simple way of thinking about this, this very visual way, this very physical kinesthetic way of saying, okay, slow, and then fast, and then slow, this is how I grow. And that helps you, you can use that, whether you're starting a new job, you're starting a new role, you're starting a new podcast, you're writing a book, you're starting a new hobby, a new year, all of that, all of this, this model helps you understand and navigate launching into anything new. And it's so important in this era of rapid change that we're experiencing. And you know, one of the things I, I thought was really interesting, when I read this book, because I didn't know this about you. And 
maybe it's why we connected so well is your Celtic background. So both Scottish and Cornish, but your ancestors essentially pursued a an unknown world as well. So this is in our nature to be able to explore and they probably didn't have a map. Things were very, very difficult. And what I loved about the S curve, the way you describe it is it provides a map in this, if you call it a, a digital digital world where we're actually we're actually exploring this digital realm, understanding new business models, new insights, etc. That becomes so useful. Maybe you'll say a word on the speed of change that we're experiencing and maybe some of the coaches and some of the organizations you are coaching and what they're experiencing. I think the re- the reason I get so excited about the S curve is that, you know, just the other day I was I was having a conversation with a, a brand new CEO and they were saying, oh, I feel like I, I, I'm struggling. I don't know exactly what I'm doing. This is, this is awkward. And I was able to say, well, yes, of course, of course, of course it's awkward. And you, you, you should expect that it would be this way. And then they were able to say, oh, I feel so much better that knowing that this is normal. Um, the, the thing I would say is that part of what's going on in the world right now is that we were all on an S curve pre-pandemic and then post-pandemic, we're on a new S curve. And that's part of why it's been so challenging for us is because the entire world all at the same time was on a brand new S curve. And so we're all trying to figure out what that looks like. But the good news is, is that now that we have this movement, now that we've got this um, resilience really that we've discovered in ourselves because we were pushed off the S curve, um, we're now moving and that's where that growth is coming from. And in fact, I would argue where we're talking about the great resignation, I think it's the great aspiration. We're resigning from things because we're aspiring to so much more. And that's one of the gifts of the pandemic. But again, aspiring to new things, launch point of the curve, it's going to feel pretty uncomfortable. We'll come back to that towards the end, because Whitney does a beautiful job in in the book of plotting us through different periods of the S-curve journey. And I just wanted to say at this stage, just in case, because you know how it is, Whitney, people are time strapped. Sometimes they tune out and they won't get there. But if you're a leader... Some of the insights in Whitney's book are for you as a team leader or a manager or CEO, as well as you individually as a CEO as well. And I thought I just grasped this opportunity here, Whitney, to talk about the advice you give to CEOs, because it's difficult for them, because as you said there, the world we're going into, we're going into a new S-curve of development in the world from the industrial age, but also the industrial way of being a leader. And that's difficult for people because there's expectations on them or else they perceive there are expectations on them to act in a different way. So what are you seeing there? Because these softer skills are emerging, but it's difficult for CEOs to be able to embrace them. It is difficult um, um, because, as you just said, we we were in an industrial area era where we were looking at people and processes and everything as a machine, as cogs in the wheel. Again, I think one of the, the the real gifts of the past couple of years, there was a study done by Aegon Zender where they surveyed, they conducted a survey with a thousand CEOs and they um, found that 80% of those CEOs strongly agreed and 100% agreed, but 80% strongly agreed that they needed to not only transform their organization, they needed to transform themselves. Now, you and I and everybody listening says, well, of course. But what's fascinating is that prior to the pandemic, that number was only 26%. So increased threefold in two years. And so what I would say to every CEO who's listening to this and saying, I'm, I've got to transform my company. I've got to 10X my company. I've got to turn around my company. What I would say to you is if you want to transform your organization, um, you start with yourself. And if you're willing to start with yourself of transforming yourself, of being on a new S curve, of figuring out how to listen better, how to communicate better, I know you're doing some work around that, Aiden. Um, as you transform yourself and you're willing to go on that journey of growing up the S curve, you will give everyone in your organization permission to transform and change as well. And the fundamental unit of growth in any organization is the individual. So you grow yourself to grow your people, to grow your company. But again, if it's feeling awkward and unusual, that's because two years ago, that's not how the world was thinking. 
While we're on the topic of CEOs as well, you, you mentioned for loads of studies in the book, the research is fabulous as always. You mentioned about the life cycles uh, report from 2019 about the life cycle of a CEO really well worth exploring. But I wanted to talk about Alan Mulally because you mentioned Mulally, Rita McGrath, who's been a guest on the show several times, also mentions Mulally as one of these revolutionary kind of CEOs who was well ahead of his time. But I loved in particular, he introduced new practices as a new CEO coming into organizations. And I loved what you talked about where he recalibrated the troops in particular, when they were going onto a new S curve together as a business. So one of the things that he does, and I think it's really powerful is he understands number one, the importance of, of ritual and routine. And also um, that in order for people we're motivated individually, but in order for us to work together, we have to have a common purpose, a common vision of what we want to accomplish. And so what he would do, and it's a bit of theater, but it's also basically getting our, our neural pathways in sync so that we see each other as a friend, not as a foe at the beginning of every single session, what he would do is he would have people read uh, out loud, working together principles. And we actually do this in our company as well. Actually, I'm going to share my screen, Aiden, and let's do it together. Do you want to do that? Can let's I do that. Yeah. Screen? Yeah. Let me yeah, open it let up. Let me share it. Here you go. And then we can read them together. That'll be more fun. So I'll go first. So people first, love them up. Everyone is included. Clear goals. There is no judgment. We are all here to help each other. Facts and data, we can't manage a secret. The data sets us free. Everyone knows our plan, status, and areas that need special attention. Respect, listen, and appreciate each other. Emotional resilience, trust the process. Have fun, enjoy the journey, and each other. Celebrate the red, they're gems. Self-reliant and resourceful, I can figure it out. I can find a way. And I'll tell you the story on the red. So what what are the reds is that they would color code <clears throat> all of their different projects. So green is it's on track, yellow is ah, my no, and then red is like, you know, stop, stop. We got to talk about this. And what he did is he said, okay, when a red comes up, he would basically clap because people were willing to say this isn't working. And what he would look at it is saying, this gives us information about what we can do differently. And actually, I'll tell you a quick story around this. I know it's a bit of digression, but I think it's it's really powerful is um, when I was writing my prior book, Build an A-Team, I interviewed Alan and I, I wanted to know what he thought about failure. I said, so Alan, you know, what do you do when things don't work? Like, And he's like, you know, when you fail and he goes, well, I don't, I don't think about failure. And I was like, what? So I'm like, okay, we're going to take another round, the lap around the track. And we'll ask the question, like, what do you do when, when failure happens? He's like, I don't think about it. And I was like, I, it really literally was not computing in my brain. I could not understand what he was saying. So then I asked him one more time and he said, Whitney, I don't think about it that way. And this goes to this idea. When I see a red, that is a gem. When something doesn't work, this is information. This is data that will allow us to get better. And so as you can imagine, one of the reasons he was such a great CEO is that he was so resilient. And the resilience comes because you're like, this isn't a referendum on me or my ego. It's just the system. And how can we do that better? And I think this comes back to what you were saying of that advice for CEOs is to say, we're all on this S curve together. And every time we get information about things that aren't working, it's not a referendum on me as a CEO, or even you as a leader. It's just, this is information for how we can get better, how we can iterate faster and move up that S curve more quickly and effectively. I love that. I, I love to hear those. I, I think it's so important, Whitney, to share those stories. You know, the one of the great stories, Richard Dawkins, you know, the, the famous uh, author and scientist, Richard Dawkins, he, he, he talked about one of the most formative experiences in his life was when there was a lecturer, one of the elder statesmen in his college was presenting his paper that he presented every year. And, you know, somebody came in and actually found a flaw in it. And everybody in the class were like, Oh, my God, what's going to happen? And he realized that this gentleman who actually proved him wrong was correct. And he started to applaud. And he said he he applauded so much that he clapped his hands red. And it made me think of Malali as well. That's a great story. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you afterwards. It's just so powerful. I think when 
and I'm saying this for a reason because I'm jumping around a bit now as well. But you talk about the importance of feedback, and you had a very formative experience with me with my feedback for my book, and I'm going to get it in there because it was so valuable. And it was so brave as well, because we didn't know each other that well, where you were kind of going, this could actually break this relationship. But I think given my my sporting background, I was so appreciative of the feedback you gave me on on, on the book. And it really made a huge impact. And, and I think those are, are, it wasn't a post traumatic growth moment, but it was a growth moment where actually binds you even through the through the ones and zeros here, it binds you together. I totally agree. And you know, Aiden, when you said that, and this idea of, of, you know, along the S curve, and we'll bring it back to that. And I want to tell you another story, which is really fun. So on the S curve, when you're at the launch point, one of the things you do is you're exploring initially, and then you go into this collector phase. And the collector phase is where you're getting lots and lots of data that basically asking, can I get all the resources that I need from this ecosystem in order to move into the sweet spot of the curve? But one of those things that you're collecting is that data and you're collecting that that data that you're collecting is the feedback. And, and you said that you had this experience because you were open to it, right? You've got to be open data collection, open for business. You were able to make your book more of a book that you wanted it to be. And I had a similar experience where I put my book out there. I asked a friend who's a a New York Times bestselling uh, fiction author to read the book and she eviscerated it. I mean, she literally eviscerated it. And, um, and yet I didn't clap my hands raw, but when it came back, I, I was just grateful because I knew that then the book was going to be able to be what it wants to be. And I think that's when you know you're in a good place of growth is that you can take that feedback in and know that all of that feedback is going to serve you in a way that you're going to be able to move up the curve that you, this curve that you want to be on and want to be successful on. So that, that collection of feedback is incredibly valuable. I love it. And we'll come to the explorer phase next. But last thing for you is with my children, I, I tell them this, I, I say to them, if the person doesn't care, they won't give you feedback. So when you know, this gives me a great bit of latitude, Whitney to, uh, <laughs> to scold them, and kind of go, it's coming from a place of love. But it is because, you know, our, our role is really to be a Sherpa for how to navigate the world. And you need to actually tell the kids when they're out of order otherwise you'll actually let them become what they shouldn't become you know and and that i think that idea of many of the things you talk about in the book are so valuable for a parent as well to help your children navigate the world so i just wanted to say that because i think that's so important from a feedback perspective but anyway my it was my opportunity to thank you once again <laughs> and and you know you know ed hess as well ed hess the Darden professor he's a great friend of the show ed did the same for me with my first draft of the book, he tore it to shreds. And, uh, and again, he's like, this is coming from a place of goodness. And I was like, I absolutely appreciate that. So I the two of you gave me uh, gave me negative feedback, if you want to take it that way. But for me, it was positive. So it was so valuable. Anyway, let's let's keep going, because we'll go to the explorer phase. Do, do you know, I don't know if you ever saw a movie, movie, um, it's an M. Night Shyamalan movie, the guy who wrote uh, The Sixth Sense. He also wrote another book uh, with Bruce Willis as the star actor called uh, another movie called Unbreakable. Did you ever see that? No, but t- tell us why, okay. why it's coming to mind for you. So, so, so the, there's a scene in it, right? So Unbreakable, and, and there's a bit of a spoiler alert here, uh, in a way. So he he's like this uh, unbreakable man. It's a comic book, essentially. And then for every Joker, there's a Batman. So then there's somebody else that's Mr. Glass. And Mr. Glass is breakable, right? And but there's an, a scene in the movie, and I'm going to show it over over here, I'm going to overlay it on YouTube, where Mr. Glass goes into a comic book store. And he just goes into the zone into gamma wave zone. And he closes his eyes and he just starts sla- he's on a wheelchair because he's Mr. Glass, he's broken. And he just starts slamming off the comic book shelf until a comic book falls down. And when I read about Explorer phase at the start of the curve, it reminded me of that scene, because it's this kind of, 
you're divining what's coming next, what information is right for me, what feels right. And he picked it up and he, he kind of felt this connection with this comic book and it was a clue for him. And I, I like that because I thought about, well, that's actually what happens because you're an executive coach. And I spot this with my coaches as well. Sometimes when they're looking to pursue a new S curve, they're going to go, but what? And I'm going, well, you got to figure that out. You got to you got to explore and find out what's right for you. And I just wanted to tee that up for you. That's a volleyball pass to you to take it away. I love that, 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 that scene of that film that, that conjures up, it makes it so much more visual and interesting. So yeah, so the explorer phase, this is that place on the launch point of the curve where you, um, you may have decided to jump to this new curve, but you may have been pushed to this new curve, like when you lose a job and, and people are losing jobs and will continue to lose jobs. And, and, and so you're pushed here. And so then the question that you have to ask, once you get, you land in this place that you may have wanted to, or not wanted to land, what are you going to do next? And so that's, this is the place where you explore. Are you going to get off the Island immediately? you know, find a boat, build a boat, get off the island immediately, or stay a little bit longer and decide, I want to see if I can collect the data, collect what I need in order to be successful on this curve. And so what I have suggested is that there are a number of questions that you can ask yourself to decide, do I want to stay here a bit longer and see if I can move into the sweet spot? And I'll just go through them very quickly. The first one is, is it achievable in the sense of, is this something that I believe that I can achieve? And, um, and I, I say this because I think that sometimes we, I don't actually think that we set goals that we don't believe that we can achieve. And deep in our soul, it might feel like a super stretch goal, but there's something deep inside of us that says, you know, I could do that. Like, I could do that. Um, so for example, I don't think to myself, I'm going to run, you know, a three and a half minute mile. I don't think about that. I don't think it's achievable. And, and frankly, it's not achievable. But a five minute mile, that might be achievable. A six minute mile, that might be achievable. So is it something that I believe that I can achieve? Second thing is to, you know, is it something that I can test easily? Can I get good feedback? We've been talking a lot about feedback. Can I get feedback that will help me inform if this makes sense or not very quickly? Third question that I, I think is really important to ask is, is it familiar yet novel? So is this S-curve familiar enough that I can figure it out, um, that I can navigate it? But is it novel enough that it will allow me to, to grow? So for example, for you, having been a rugby player, you may say, you know, I want to figure out how to play cricket. It's a different sport for you. It's definitely novel, but there's some familiarity that makes it navigable. That's a bit more of a stretch for me not having played those sports. Cricket might be navigable, but it's going to be a lot more of a stretch. So I'm figuring out, I'm, I'm looking for that optimal ratio before try, be, between tried and true and new. And then the other ones really quickly is, does it fit with my identity? It may not fit with who I am today, but it fits with who I aspire to be. And so that sometimes comes into play with religion. Like it's not with who I am today, but I aspire to be this way. And so therefore it's worth the cost of what it's going to take to move up this curve. Does it move with my values? And then finally, does it align with my purpose? And those are big and deep questions and we continue to iterate on them throughout our lives. But if you start there, you're going to be able to make a decision pretty quickly. Yeah, not the right island, got to keep going, not the right S curve, got to keep going or, oh, well, let me, let me play with this a little bit more. I love that. And, and again, I just want to plant the picture again, the S curve is your map, and you're exploring, you're going on this voyage of explore, exploration. So the first point is to figure out, well, where can my boat go? And later on the car as well, Whitney, we'll, we'll get into that. But I wanted to just zone into that very last question, because, you know, as an exec coach that very often, people are very uncomfortable with exploring what are my values, what are my pr principles, what's my purpose, because oftentimes they've never ever done it before. But it's extremely useful. And you say, exploration involves excavating our shadow values, wanting personal credit, for example, because as a child, if you weren't the best approval was withheld. This dynamic was the seedbed for a shadow value, get along with your schoolmates, but make sure that you win. Obscured values are often the default setting that govern our choices. But because 
they are less socially acceptable and productive than our stated values, we try to keep them hidden. Shadow values may live in the shadow of our consciousness, but they are very apparent in our behavior. I thought we'd dig into that because it's such an important point that's so often overlooked. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so there, there's some some great research out there. Um, they don't really call it shadow values. I think it's it's Robert Keegan and um, looking at sort of competing behaviors. But this is really important for us to think about because as we're moving, as we're making a decision of what S curve we want to be on, you know, you'll hear people say things like, "Well, money doesn't matter to me," but then they try to figure out how how to make as much money as possible. And so then they're not a, then there starts to be this dissonance between their behavior and like we said, you know, get along with everybody but you have to win no matter what. Um and so that's why it can be so difficult in a work situation where every where people say, "Well, we just need good ideas. We just want all the good ideas on the table and then we'll figure out that good idea and then we'll make that good idea happen. And everybody's sitting there thinking, yes, of course, we want good ideas. We're going to succeed as a company. But then as soon as it ends up that you might not get credit for that idea, having gone through the school system, certainly in the West where, you know, you've got to get the A and you've got to be at the top of your class in order to get into college and university and all that, then all of a sudden people are like, well, but if I don't get credit, then what does that mean for my identity? And if my identity isn't intact, then am I going to get emotionally killed dead? So I better make sure I get credit. So we're really struggling with that. And so what I would say is, and this is my hypothesis, um, is to go back and say, all right, well, at what age did that shadow value start to emerge? Was it when I was 10? Was it when I was 15? When, when Was it when I was four? Because I was competing for attention with one of my siblings, whatever it was. And start to try to just attend to yourself at that age of life. And, and so that you can start to figure out, okay, it's okay. It's safe. Um, even if you don't get credit for this idea, the team will get credit. You're going to be okay. Your career will be all, all right. And you can kind of talk yourself down off that ledge. Then the shadow, because you're, you're acknowledging the shadow, you're acknowledging this need, um, making it feel safe. You can start to um, diffuse its power so that you can go back and, and move along with what your stated values are. I think it's so so important and e even to a personal level. So you you mentioned all the time your husband, for example, is a truth speaker or a truth teller. My, my wife's the same, she doesn't hold back. <laughs> so there's no there's no polite feedback. So I'm, I have a hard skin, uh, Whitney, but one of the things that I find so interesting is, you know, when your husband or your partner for those people listening, will do a task that you expect of them anyway, it's like, hey, Whitney, I packed the dishwasher and you're like, Oh, <laughs> oh, really? Well, you should have done that anyway. You're not doing me a favor. You're doing us a favor. And uh, I, I, I went, I actually explored that in myself because I was doing it for quite a while. This is maybe five, six years ago. And I was always looking for credit for those small things. And then I just kind of revealed, I went, actually, I dug into it. And I went, actually, it, was, it comes from my childhood, because I was the only kid of four that actually did the tidying of the kitchen and did my own washing and all swept the floor and all those things. But I never got credited for it. And, and when I dug into it, I went, ah, and it was, it was so relieving, because it was like, I was able to let it go then, and then never did it again, and just went, oh, well, geez, what a, you know, and, and there's a kind of a moment of, you kind of feel a bit embarrassed that you did it for so long. But that's the point, you actually can let it go. And I think that's, you know, that self discovery is so important. Absolutely. And I think also there's some there's some compassion that comes into that of like, of, of these, these shadow values come out because at some level, we didn't feel seen, right? So as a child, you're saying, I didn't feel I did this work, like I'm, I'm helping and I'm, I'm keeping our house working and no one's seeing that I'm doing it. And so then you're like, okay, yeah, but now I'm in a totally different situation. And, and my, my wife, my partner does see that I'm doing it. So now I'm okay. But once we can acknowledge that, then again, you pull it out of the shadows, you excavate it, it diffuses its power and you can move forward. So I think it's, I think it's just really important because we, we, once we know what's happening, 
we're a, we're going to be able to move along that curve faster because we know we know what values are going to potentially drag us back down because they're competing with what we're saying we're trying to do. So I wanted to jump to something else, the jumping S curves, because one of the things about jumping from curves to curves, I, I often think of Tarzan going from vine to vine, is that we sometimes get it wrong. And I'm, I'm going to call upon what you do very, uh, very graciously in all your books, you, you reveal parts of yourself. And I had I didn't know this about you. And you say here, smart growth requires dedication, discipline, hard work, a host of things that challenge us and test our patience. We can become frustrate, frustrated, particularly when we fail. But the exploration process can help shield us against undesirable consequences. You you know this from personal experience as you share with us. Because while having enjoyed a measure of serendipity and good fortune in your life and career, you've also undertaken S curves that haven't worked out and felt cursed to you. I think that's really important. And, and I'm, I'm very grateful that you mentioned that because oftentimes don't people don't share that. And then somebody else looks and kind of go, Oh, well, I don't have what it takes. And you're kind of going, you do. This map will help you including help you understand that they don't always work out. So a little bit of backstory here, Aiden, I think is important is that, um, uh, you know, in the, the version of the book that I was talking about earlier, my friend Julie that eviscerated the book, she she said to me, <laughs> she said, the book sounds, I don't know that she said this, but this is my interpretation. The book sounds a bit chirpy, you know, just, and then you do this and then you do this and then you climb the S curve and then this happens. And I think that um, I think that we do that because we want to put forward a positive face and like, yes, you can do it. And yes, we can accomplish things. But to your point, um, if we're not willing to say some of the things that have not worked, then then we actually undermine our own credibility. And so the example that I think you're talking about is um, when we invested in a magazine. Yeah. Okay. So I'll tell that story just really quickly is that um, this is probably about 15 years ago now. And um, we had a friend who had an idea to start a magazine. And this is 15 years ago when magazines were a little bit less disrupted. And it was a really good idea. And I thought, let's do this. And I, you know, I like investing in good ideas. I like investing in people even more. Let's do it. Um, well, one of the things that I didn't do well was I did not have a conversation with my husband and we, you know, we manage our money together. <laughs> um, some people don't, but we do. And I just went off without actually having the conversation. I think one of the things that can happen sometimes is that when we're in the launch point of that curve, yes, you can get overwhelmed, but sometimes you can get overconfident and impatient, which is what I did. I just want to do this. We're going to just do this. Well, we did do it. Um, but it turns out out that um, we didn't do simple things like having an agreement in place before we invested money in it, you know, all sorts of rookie, rookie mistakes. Um, and, uh, and so it ended up doing really well for a brief period, but then it unraveled and um, the friendship clearly unraveled and we lost a lot of money. And for a brief time, I had to do some work of, you know, regaining my husband's sort of sense trust is probably a little bit strong but it was it was tough for us because there was this sense of we hadn't done this together we hadn't worked through this together we hadn't made a decision that should have been made by us collectively together because i got impatient in wanting to move along that curve and so i do think that as we're thinking about launching new curves um, I think quarter life crises, midlife crises can be avoided if we're willing to do to be patient at that launch point and really do the exploration, really do the collecting. One of the other things you talk about here, and, and this comes up oftentimes when people are evaluating and exploring is, which one do I go for? Because there's maybe and, and this is the, actually the paradox of choice and the difficulty when you have some great choices to make and you've experienced this awake uh, as well. And I love how you put this because this was at the S curve point where you started out off as a thought leader, started your podcast, started publishing, etc. And you were you had a choice to make here. And I love how you put this. In many ways, that partnership was a good fit. This was a partnership with your two friends. Maybe you'll, you'll give us some backstory. But you still and this is the key point, you still feel a little pang of sadness because you've seen how successful 
that other experience went. But I love what you said next. The tide went out, a desirable ship sailed away and you weren't aboard. But none of us can visit every attractive port of call beautifully written. And maybe you'll give us a bit of the backstory here because this one is so valuable. So this is to the point of, uh, you know, there are sometimes it's like, well, you know, should I go become a UFC fighter? Or should I, you know, run three miles and it's like a pretty easy decision, right? But you're talking about what do you do when you've got two really good choices. And this is what happened for me, is that I had um, been uh, Kay Koplovitz, who was one of the earlier founders of USA Today and Amy Wildstein, they had reached out to me and said, let's start a fund um, to invest in women-owned businesses. And this was after I had sold my stake at the Disruptive Innovation Fund with Clay. And I was really excited about this. Um, it was investing, it was investing in women, it was investing in people. Um, and I, I considered myself an investor. And we spent a couple years on this and were gaining some traction, although early on, launch point of the curve, it was very slow. But at the same time, I had written this article in Harvard Business Review called Disrupt Yourself and was getting ready to write my next book and um, or writing a book. And I now had two choices. Do I go do the investing piece or do I pursue this thought leader speaking and writing and coaching and advising? And while I could have done both, I couldn't be at the launch point of both curves at the same time. And that was the challenge. And I remember actually right before Disrupt Yourself came out. So this was 2015. I was, you know, it was like two months away from the launch and I'm doing all this work on the investing. And my husband finally says to me, you have to choose. You're going to have to choose. And I didn't want to, I, I didn't want to hear it, but because of my prior experience of not listening, this time I listened because I do get smarter in listening to my truth tellers. So I made a choice. And, um, and, and as I say in the book, Kay and Amy have gone on to be successful. They invested in the real, real, they invested in hit water. Um, and I'm so happy for them. And I'm so happy for the curve that I'm on, but that doesn't mean, and I'll give, uh, I'll give, um, Dan Pink, a little shout out because he has a book coming out, The Power of Regret, doesn't mean you don't feel a little sad. And that's okay. I think I think if we don't ever feel sad about any decisions that we've made, then we may not have a wide or expansive enough choice set to begin with. I love that. And, and thank you for sharing it. It's so important again, because that, that just happens, you know, and, and you know, the thing, I always think of those things that happen, like I'll give you an example. The other day, I was doing a talk uh, for a company in Japan. And it was really early and I decided to cycle into the city where my studio is. So I came in and it was uh, 5.30 a.m. There was no cars on the street. It was great. And I was cycling across what is usually a really, really busy junction. And my bike uh, slipped on some oil or something like that. And I went flying and I, I slid along the far side of the road, which would usually be packed full of like lorries and trucks and stuff like that. And and I thought about it afterwards and I was like, oh, you know, because you kind of go, why did that happen? <laughs> well, I, I do, I always, I probably over examine things, but I kind of go, and then I thought, well, maybe if it didn't happen, I would have got hit and hit by a car around the other corner or something like that. And I think that kind of idea that that these things happen, and you can't, you, you know, you can't mourn them, because they could have stopped you going on a totally different path that wasn't for you. I think that's, just whether whether it's a, a cheat or not, I don't know. But certainly it helps me navigate the world when things don't seem to be going the right way. And then they eventually always work out. I think that's a very positive way of thinking. I completely agree. And I, you know, you, you reminded me of something this is, this is slightly different. It's kind of flipping it. But it's that when you can't let something go that has has been hurtful. And um, I don't remember who said it, but they said that um, forgiveness is giving up all hope of a better past. And I think it's that idea of like, you know, I made the decision and now we need to move forward and and not try to second guess the decision because you made the best decision you could at that at, at that given time. That's a, a great way to think about it. And, and you know, it's so valuable that we're doing this show just coming into the new year as well for people as well. This book will help you navigate those people who are thinking about the great, what did you call it? The great? It's not the great resignation. It's the great 
aspiration. Aspiration, yes. I, I actually call it the great recalibration because I just felt things moved and, you know, the the tectonic plates of disruption have recalibrated the land. Agreed. I love that. That's a great description. Okay, so so uh, I'm going to get back onto the, onto the, the book curve. Uh, so we're on collector phase at this stage. And something that I thought was re- really valuable. And I said to th- this about the fall that I had, because I, I've recently, probably in the last year, and I think COVID was useful for this, because it gave us a moment for introspection. I started to collect metrics. And I don't mean, like, you know, how, how I'm doing financially or anything like that, or our body mass index. But it's like, how was I feeling throughout the day? what made me feel that way. So I can try and spot the trends almost like an AI for myself, if you want to call that. And one of the things is, at certain points of the day, I might feel irritable. And I'm kind of going, why? What what led to that? Was there a trigger for me, etc. And one of the things you used resonated hugely with me because I, I do the same thing you say, sometimes when you're doing something that is an absolute privilege to do, you use the language that I have to do that. And being able to spot these things at this stage helps you inform yourself more about your mindset and how you can improve. Yeah. So one of the things, so as you're you're at the launch point and you've you've said, okay, you've passed the explorer phase and said, you know, I want to stay on this S curve a little while longer. Now I want to see if I can collect the resources that I need that will allow me to be successful and move into the sweet spot on this curve. One of the things you want to be doing as you're collecting is collecting this data on what are the things that I do or or could happen that will hinder that growth or will help that growth. And so there's this, this um, we think about, you know, Christmas has just passed and we think about Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol and revisiting our ghosts of the past. And and one of the, the ghosts that comes up is the language that we use to describe the experiences that we're having, to describe and how we frame our life. And so I'll, I'll give two things. One's a, one's a negative and one's a positive. So you just alluded to this is this idea of, I can be getting ready to go on a trip where I get to speak, you know, in a wonderful place like Denmark, or, or I get to submit a book or I'm going on a vacation and I will say, I have to do this. And I think about that and what, what am I telling myself? What am I telling my psyche? What am I telling my body when I say I have to do it? I'm saying there's something dangerous, that this isn't safe. This isn't something worth doing. And that is going to hinder me from making progress up the curve. And so I have been become much more aware of when am I saying I have to, and that came up because my daughter caught it. I didn't know I was doing it, but she said, you know, you say I have to a lot and really, do you have, first of all, do you have to, and why are you saying I have to about these things that are really, as you say, privileges. Um, but the other thing that I do that I noticed, and I, I didn't realize is that, um, I, when I eat food, (laughs) I love eating food, you know, like my, my husband or daughter will make food. We, We have berries and we make jam or they'll make tacos or whatever. And I'll be like, I love this. This is so good. And I, and they said, it gives them so much delight because I, I love food. And I realized, Oh, so for me, food is a love language. It's a way that I feel, I feel, I feel loved when people share with me good food. And also it's a way of sharing food with other people. And obviously there's oxytocin. That is something that having those meals together, having that point of connection is, is allows me in my life generally to move up that S curve. And so that was another sort of fun thing that came up. I wanted to get to accelerate and, and, there's there's a piece where it's very hard to describe here without the visuals as well. But there's there's a speed that goes with each of the points on the curve as you go up because at the start, it's slower and it gets faster and faster. And then it stagnates again at the top like an S curve. But I loved what you call this. So this point part three is accelerator, the acceleration uh, phase where we experience the growth. And here you share the acronym CAOR nicely done as a mnemonic device for acceleration. So maybe we'll share this because this is very useful for people to understand this phase of the S curve. 
So this goes back to self-determination theory. So you're thinking about autonomy and competence and relatedness, but we just flipped it because it's accelerator and said, okay, you've got competence, autonomy, and relatedness. And the idea here is, is that you'll know that you're in the sweet spot when these three things are in place. And so you're feeling very competent. You're feeling confident. It's, it's, it's still a challenge. Um, but you're, you're like, I can do this. I've got this. And, and we've all had those moments. You can kind of argue that it's that moment of flow of when you you're figuring something out and you're, and you're competent at it. There's also the sense of autonomy and the autonomy is, is that you're, you feel this sense of, I am the master of my own fate. It doesn't mean that it's not a hard situation. So one of the stories that we tell in the book is a woman by the name of Liz O'Donnell, where she discovered that both of her parents needed help. She had a full-time job. She had young children and she was feeling very angry about it and like resentful. And then finally she just said, okay, I, I want to be with my parents when they're dying. So I'm going to choose to do this. And as soon as she decided that she was going to choose to show up and choose to be in that place that she was in, not why am I here, but what am I going to do? Then she had this sense of autonomy that would allow her to move into the sweet spot. And then the third thing is this sense of relatedness. When you're in the sweet spot, you feel connected to what you're doing and you feel connected to the people around you that you're doing it with. I use the example of Zaza Pachulia, who formerly was a basketball player with the um, Golden State Warriors of talking about, you know, most rookies get on the court and they're like, me, 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 me. And he's like, you only actually get really good when you know the strengths and weaknesses of your other players. And I'm sure you've experienced this, Aiden, in playing rugby, but there's this sense of connectedness and relatedness to the people you're doing it with and to what you're doing. And when those three things, C, A, R, car are all in place, that you're you're accelerating, you're moving, you're in hyper growth along that S curve. I wanted to tack on a little bit here because you mentioned Myron Skulls and that I love this quote, all of the returns are explained by the tails. The middle is a lot of noise. I thought this was very valuable and a great mental model. So I was so excited. I, I was actually speaking in London and I heard him, I heard him speak and I was like, this is awesome because this explains it. And he, he basically says uh, from a stock market perspective, he did this analysis over 150 years. And what he found is that um, your returns differed dramatically depending on when you bought or sold. So if you if you um, sold all your stocks when the, when the stock market went down precipitously, then your returns were astronomical. If you'd sold all your stocks periodically when the returns in the market were good, then your returns were terrible. And so basically his idea was, is if you can get the beginning, right, the launch point of the curve, right. And if you can't get the um, ending, right, the mastery part of the curve, right, then the sweet spot, the middle of it will sort of the momentum will take care of itself. And that to me was just so compelling and so powerful. And I love it when you get examples from other disciplines that help you illustrate the point that you're trying to make. And I think this, this did it beautifully. You mentioned the word psyche earlier on. And I loved when you mentioned the Greek myths and particularly the story of Psyche. It serves as such a beautiful reminder that sometimes we have to say no to say yes. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the, the challenges or the, the risks when you're in the sweet spot, it, it, what we need in the sweet spot is we need focus. And the reason is, is because as you're super, you're capable and you're competent and you're feeling this sense of like, I got this, you get lots and lots and lots of opportunities. And so you can get derailed. And, and um, so one of the, the, the skills that you, you need to develop is that ability to say no. And so the story that you're referring to is the myth of psyche where she, um, she gets separated from her love, um, Eros and Aphrodite says, well, uh, you can get back together. You can be re reunited, but there are these four tasks that you have to go through. And there, the, I won't go through the first three tasks, but the fourth and final task, the hardest one, the one that's going to be the potential deal breaker is she has to go into the underworld and collect this box of ointment and bring it back to Aphrodite. But what that means is that she, as she goes into the underworld, she's going to have these people asking her and pleading for her and imploring for her to do things. And the only way that she can pass the test 
is if she says no to them. So this is this is mapping psychological development, but it's so powerful because we we you know, yes is the word of connection, no is the word of of protection and in this particular instance to protect her relationships, she has to be able to say no. And I just think that is such an an important lesson. It's an important lesson. Men tend to be a little bit better at it than women. Women tend to be terrible at it. But I think in both instances, we have to learn how to say no if we're going to stay focused enough for the caterpillar to become a butterfly or to metamorphose. Beautiful, beautiful. And I'm going to keep moving on here because I'd love to just even at the top level touch on the other points. So at this stage, you're in mastery, you're brilliant. What was difficult before is now easy. Perhaps you were a person in a legacy organization that started a new part of the business. You were excited about that. Now it's come to a point of maturity. Perhaps you're a CEO and you're at the top of your S curve and you're starting to stagnate like we all do. And you say in time, the familiar lethargy that goaded us to climb an S curve in the first place returns, we now need a new mountain to climb, a fresh S curve of learning. This is where we become a mountaineer. And here, I love what you say, Whitney, one of my favorite ones. Actual mountaineering, stopping at a high altitude can be deadly. And any altitude above 26,000 feet is considered the death zone an area where oxygen, physical exhaustion and reduced awareness can lead to serious accidents and death. And here's the beautiful line. Learning is the oxygen of human growth. When learning diminishes, so do we learning is essential to our continued development. Love that line. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Because when you stop learning and you stop growing, you're effectively going to your brain and your body are going to start to die. And so once you get to the top of the mountain, you actually have a number of choices. One can be that this is a summit, not the summit. So you find a way to challenge yourself in such a way that you continue to stay in the sweet spot and you just keep climbing that mountain. And I think that um, that that is something that many of us do in our lives. And it's certainly what we need to do with our relationships, right? We don't really, the relationships that matter most to us, we don't ever want to get to that place. We want to stay in sweet in the sweet spot perennially. Um, but the other thing is that we may need to decide that we've got to jump to a brand new S-curve entirely. Um, the, the challenge or the, the opportunity for us is that we want to continually grow. And growth is about being able to complete the entire growth cycle. It's not just about navigating the launch point or being in the sweet spot all the time or in mastery. It's the ability to continually get to the top of the mountain and jump to um, the, the top of a new mountain or find a way for that mountain to actually just be a stop along the way. And what's your advice here, Whitney, because this is a difficult one for CEOs in particular, because they've got to where they are at the start, uh, the top of the S curve based on the way things used to be. So jumping into the unknown is, is very uncomfortable for them. And oftentimes you have built up such a legacy and your persona becomes intertwined with what you do, not who you are. So it's a difficult place for to be. And I'm sure you coach lots of CEOs on this. What's your thoughts on a high level? So I, I think this goes back to what we said earlier about this Aegon Zender study of the CEOs realizing, oh, if I'm going to transform my organization, I need to transform myself as well. And so that's where, I mean, this is, this is going to be us talking our own book. That's why you are a coach. That's why I'm a coach is that we, as a, as a coach, we're able to be that, you know, that um, you know, additional bonus prefrontal cortex and help them think through this. But the fact is, is that if you're not growing, you're dying. So if you're a CEO and you want to be able to continue to stay relevant, you must start by disrupting yourself because otherwise you're not going to be able to disrupt, have your people disrupt themselves that because they're watching every single thing you do and nor will your organization be able to disrupt. So it's pretty simple. It starts with you. One of the things I just wanted to jump in there because Whitney does this as well, where there's a, there's a step back moment at the end of each part of the book and goes, what about you as a people manager or a leader of other people? And if you think about your people as a portfolio of S curves, you say it's very important that they're not always they're not all at the top of the curve. So you can't have everybody at the same level in the curve, you need to manage that portfolio very wisely. 
Absolutely. And we actually have an article about this in Harvard Business Review in January, February, um, is that you want to have this diversity of learning curves. And so um, as a starting point, bell curve standard distribution, think about having 60% of your people at least in the sweet spot of their growth where they know enough, but not too much. Um, 20% at the launch point where they're asking like, why do we do it like this? Because that opens the door to innovation. And then 20% in mastery who are saying, well, here's why we do it like this. You know, have you thought about X, Y, or Z? And if you use that as a starting point, then you're going to have that diversity of where people are in their growth. And that's going to optimize your organization for being able to innovate and advance and grow in the way that you want your organization to grow because you're growing your people. And then one of the, the final moments is when you talk about the ecosystem, and I'm going to get this in here because I mentioned to you before, we mentioned your hydrangeas, we mentioned the poncettias, but we didn't mention the water lilies. And I'm going to tee you up here because I loved your water lilies and they bloom throughout the book, excuse the pun. And you tell us water lilies are a keystone species. And I, I see you wrote this in your latest newsletter. I highly recommend signing up for Whitney's newsletter. They're a keystone species in their ecosystem. The pond and its environs cannot survive without the lilies. Tadpoles find food and shelter in the lily shade. Tadpoles morph into frogs. Frogs sunbathe on the convenient lily pads. Snakes hunt frogs. And the cycle goes on. The inter this interdependence characterizes smart growth companies as well. One of the things is that that I I thought a lot about is yes you 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 know you grow yourself to grow your people and and you we talk a lot about you know having this ecosystem around us that makes it possible for me to grow and makes it possible for you to grow. Um, and so, and there are certain people like our managers or our bosses who are the keystone species in our ecosystem, like without a boss who wants you to grow, it's going to be tough. Right. But the, the thing that I, I flip on that is then to ask the question that I think is so important is um, in whose ecosystem are you the keystone species? And I think that that is such an important thing for us to reflect on, because if you're, if you are a manager, you are the keystone species in someone's ecosystem. And what are, are you helping them grow? Are you the sunlight or are you, you know, are you destroying them? Certainly as a parent, you are a keystone species. And so um, one story that I tell, and you'll want to go read it. She's the introductory story, Astrid Tumina's you know, grew up in the slums of the Philippines and now is the president of a 40,000 student university. She said, and I think this is so powerful, she said, no one does this alone. If you think you do, it's a delusion. And so I just encourage everybody to think about, okay, is there an ecosystem that's making it possible for you to grow? But to what extent are you making it possible creating an ecosystem where people around you can grow? Tease me up perfectly. I usually finish the show with a final quote and I pull pulled one I was trying to select, there was several, and I got a few of them into the show, but I pulled one that I think is so, so important. But before I, I go there, I'd love you to finish the show as well, by the way, so I'll give you time to think about that while I'm quoting you. But also, where can people find out more about the book, about you, sign up for your newsletter, etc.? For the book, the probably the best place to go is to smartgrowthbook.com. Super easy, smartgrowthbook.com. Um, the podcast, you'll have links. It's Disrupt Yourself. Aiden's been a guest. If you want to hear the microphone turned um, on <laughs> on Aiden, I'm happy to have you do that. And then in terms of the newsletter, it's, it's whitneyjohnson.com forward slash newsletter. Um, so those are a number of different ways. Beautiful. And the book will be out next week from the time of publishing. So we're publishing just before the new year now. And the book will be out in the first week in January. You can pre-order, of course, on Amazon as well. And that all helps. One thing I'm going to say, I'm going to start saying this as well, because I've only realized this, is if you do buy the book and you like it, please leave a review on Amazon and Goodreads. It really helps the author. And it's so important. So I, I, we live in an age of an algorithm. Yes, we do. <laughs> my, my algorithm was going on in my head to, to, to try and decide which uh, quote to pick. And I was wondering how to finish today's episode and how I'd repay the kindness that you've given me over the years with the crucial feedback, etc. And I think this might do it. But it's not by you, but it's by somebody who had an immense impact on you and somebody that we've celebrated several times on the show. He was due to come on to the show. Sadly, he left us way too soon. And that is Clayton Christensen. He we've mentioned him many, many times on the show through Scott DeAnthony, 
through uh, through you through Michelle Weiss through Michael B Horn so many many people ha have been touched by this great man and I'm going to pull this quote because I, I absolutely love it he's talking about the ecosystem you leave behind here and he says while many of us might default to measuring our lives by summary statistics, such as the number of people presided over number of awards or dollars accumulated in a bank and so on, the only metrics that will truly matter to life are the individuals who you've been able to help to become better people. He says of himself, when I have my interview with God, our conversation will focus on the individuals whose self esteem I was able to strengthen, whose faith I was able to reinforce and whose discomfort I was able to assuage. A doer of good regardless of what assignment I had. These are the metrics that matter in measuring my life. That was your great friend Clayton Christensen who influenced so many of us in innovation. But I chose it because of what he says because I think you also in that interview that we're all going to have can measure your life in the positive in the light that you've spread the people that you've lifted and the courage you've instilled in so many. But I don't want to finish the show with that. But I wanted to say that publicly. But I wanted to hand over the mic to you to to close today's show. Whitney, what's your word for our audience today? I have a couple of thoughts. Um, number one, thank you for being so thoughtful and um, truly um, appreciative of of the of the work and the love that we put into this book. So I wanted to, first of all, say thank you to the, you for that. Um, secondly, um, if you're on video, you can see that I am tearing up a bit because I just, he was such a great man. And um, I love what he says of, you know, whose self-esteem I'm able to strengthen, whose faith I'm able to reinforce and whose discomfort I was able to assuage, a doer of good, regardless of the assignment that I had. It's just beautiful. And he really did measure his life this way. And I'm just so grateful to have been able to be influenced by him and influenced by the fact that he did not separate his secular from his spiritual life, that he really put the two together. and. Um, and what a gift. So um, I, I think the, you know, what I would say is in the dedication to the book, um, I dedicated it actually to Clayton. And what I said, and I think this will be my final words is um, to Clayton Christensen, who made this S curve possible. Friend of the innovation show, and author of yet another fantastic book, smart growth, how to grow your people to grow your business, Whitney Johnson. It's always a great pleasure. Happy New Year. Thank you, Aiden. And thank you to our partners over at Zai, a global financial services company specializing in foreign exchange and payments and supporting innovation in all its forms, including this show for the entire of 2022. Check them out over at hellozai.com.